You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 24th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, as the conflict between Israel and Hamas enters its third week, we'll ask why Israel is arming its citizens. Venezuela's Margaret Thatcher. Could Maria Corina Machado topple President Maduro? Charles Hecker has a look through the papers. What's standing out for you this morning, Charles? Good morning, Georgina. We're going to go around the world and look at the use of psychedelic mushrooms in psychotherapy. We're going to look at a significant drop in working from home. An off-duty pilot has tried to bring down an airplane. And finally, Moscow is partying like never before. And why an auction in France of items belonging to the first Senegalese president has been delayed. It's clearly related to efforts to not only honour Senghor's legacy, but also ensure Dakar's position as a leading cultural and intellectual hub for Francophone Africa. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The White House says Iran is, in some cases, actively facilitating rocket and drone attacks by Iranian-backed proxy groups on US military bases in Iraq and Syria. And President Biden has directed the Department of Defense to brace for more and respond appropriately. NATO has said it's stepping up patrols in the Baltic Sea following damage to two telecommunication cables which have stoked concerns about the security of energy supplies in the wider Nordic region. And new rock analyses shows that the moon is about 40 million years older than previously thought, forming more than 4.46 billion years ago within 110 million years after the birth of the solar system. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now we begin the show in Israel, where the latest conflict between Israel and Palestine erupted on October the 7th after Hamas launched a surprise attack on southern Israel, killing at least 1,400 people and taking more than 200 people captive. Israel responded with force, declaring war on the besieged Gaza Strip and subjecting the territory to a bombardment. Over 5,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, according to authorities in Gaza. To tell us more about the current situation, we're joined by Alison Kaplan-Sommer in Tel Aviv, a journalist from Haaretz newspaper, and in Jerusalem by Greg Karlstrom, who's Middle Eastern correspondent for The Economist. Uh, welcome to you both. Alison, I, I wonder if you could tell us what happened overnight. Uh, well, the big uh, event overnight, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, the big overnight event was the release of two additional hostages, two women in addition to the two uh, U.S. Israeli women who had been previously uh, released. Um, these two women um, are elderly women. Um, their husbands are still being held uh, held hostage. They live in border communities uh, to the Gaza Strip. They were kidnapped from their homes um, on a kibbutz uh, next to Gaza. And so um, the, that was the focus of last night was the fact that um, – was that uh, they were released and um, everyone's uh, extremely happy about that and some sort of progress, but a lot of speculation as to whether 
uh, how this hostage situation is going to play or not play into the timing of a ground incursion by Israel um, into Gaza. And the other big news, obviously, is the arrival um, today of um, uh, French uh, President uh, Macron um, and uh, and his uh, intervention on behalf of the European community in what's going on, both in terms of the scale of conflict and in terms of the hostage situation. Mm. And I mean, we've seen many different heads of state visit Israel, Greg. Macron is the latest. How important are these diplomatic missions? They're certainly important as a show of solidarity for Israel, and and they've been received well here by Israelis, particularly President Biden's visit last week and and the words that he spoke in in support of Israel. But uh, I think they're also important in a more strategic sense as well. Uh, Certainly the Americans, but also European heads of state who've been visiting Uh, They've all wanted to talk with Israeli officials about what their strategy is for this war and and not just sort of short term questions of when the ground offensive might go ahead and what it might look like, but longer term questions about how this war ends. What is the desired end state here for Israel? The government has set this sort of maximalist goal of uh, trying to remove Hamas from power in Gaza. But when you ask Israeli officials, okay, what comes next? Who takes power in Gaza after that? Uh, they don't yet have an answer to that question. And so that's a question that, that President Biden and others have been asking is is before you go in, you know, it's very easy to get into a war, but uh, it can be much harder to get out. And so before you go in, uh, what do you plan to do with the day after? And, and they haven't received a satisfactory answer. Mm. And Alison, another foreign player is China, who's calling for a ceasefire. China's kept good diplomatic relations with Israel, but it's also been a long-standing supporter of the Palestinian cause. Do you, do you think that Beijing's uh, interference or, or cooperation could make a difference? Yes, but it's uh, walking a very fine line when it comes to uh, the relationship between uh, Israel and the United States. Um, uh, President Biden has thrown his support so solidly behind Israel, has inserted himself as such a major player in this conflict that any uh, involvement uh, with China or any uh, direct intervention by China in what's going on here has to be handled with uh, with kid gloves because of the delicate um, and uh, and often um, difficult relationship between the U.S. and China. Mm. Uh, Greg, I wondered if you might give us some detail on the volunteer security squads being set up by Israel. I think to understand that, you have to understand the person who is promoting this idea, uh, and that is Itmar Ben-Gvir, the the minister in charge of public security, uh, who has been talking about uh, this and, and expanding access to firearms for Israelis. He's been talking about it since even before the massacre on October 7th. It's something that he's been pushing throughout the uh, almost a year now that he has been a minister. He's a, a right-wing ideologue. Uh, he lives in a settlement. Much of his support comes from the settler movement. And uh, in his public messaging around expanding access to firearms, uh, easing the, the gun laws in Israel, uh, both he and his wife, who put out a video about this uh, this week, uh, made a point of, of explaining what this means for the settler movement. So uh, previously under the old laws, uh, you might have had to be a, a full-time resident of a settlement to get access to a gun permit. Now you only have to commute there a couple of days a week to study. Um, the minimum age for acquiring a gun in some cases has been lowered. Uh, and this is something uh, that is, again, aimed at at his support base. And 
that so many Israelis have have applied, tens of thousands of Israelis have applied for firearms permits uh, over the past two and a half weeks. That certainly reflects a sense of insecurity in the country. But uh, there is also this backdrop of uh, there have been cases over the past two and a half weeks of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank being shot by settlers, uh, settlers attacking Palestinian villages and farms. That happens all the time, unfortunately, in the West Bank, and the army often does very little about it, the Israeli army. Um, but there's a fear that it's going to happen more in the wake of October 7th, and, and certainly adding thousands more guns to the occupied West Bank uh, is raising fears for Palestinians there. Mm. I mean, Alison, there have been concerns that these are really just private militias. What's your take? Uh, what everything that Greg said is absolutely right. The the points of context that have to be put in is number one in the summer of 2021, the last time there was a major outbreak of violence and exchange of fire between uh, Israel and Gaza. There were riots in mixed cities in Israel and um, a lot of violence perpetrated by Arab citizens in Israel on uh, on Israelis. I mean, also uh, the other way around. But um, there was a sense and Ben Gvir, to a certain extent, his political success was uh, was based on sort of stoking these fears of what had happened then. So um, there's there's a great fear that, you know, what happened then could happen again and that, you know, people want to be armed in case there's uh, any kind of issues within Israel, within the Green Line, not only in the West Bank. And I think that, you know, there is uh, trauma by the stories of what's come uh, across in the Gaza border communities. Um, the difference between wholesale slaughter and massacre in some of these kibbutzim and the ones in which um, terrorists were successfully fought against and defeated, saving the lives of all of the people who live there, were residents' access to arms. And there had been a change. They used to be able to keep weapons in their own homes. Now they were kept in these kibbutzim in essential cash. And so the um, the security squads inside the kibbutzim, which were, who were able to get to and access the weapons, successfully fought off the terrorists. The ones who weren't weren't able to, and the entire kibbutzim, or you know, was uh, were slaughtered, or a huge percentage uh, were slaughtered and attacked. And so I think that these stories have now sort of awakened and sparked Israeli citizens' um, desire to have access to a weapon if they need it. Um, mm. uh, and again, that does not negate the fact that Ben Gvir, as Greg described is stoking this to serve a political agenda that he's had for a very long time. Uh, And Greg, just before we go, how much aid is getting through to Gaza? Uh, More than was getting through a few days ago, but still not enough. It it does seem like we're heading towards uh, regular deliveries of aid coming across the Rafah border crossing from Egypt. It started with 20 trucks that went across on Saturday, and and there have been additional shipments since, but just a fraction of what is needed there. The United Nations said over the weekend that Gaza needs about 100 trucks a day uh, to provide what it needs in terms of food, water, medicine. Uh, We're we're nowhere near that level, Uh, and there have been no shipments of fuel still into Gaza. So you, you talk to doctors there, and they say hospitals uh, are down to the the last bits of fuel in their generators. They've already turned off uh, air conditioning. They've turned off the lights in some parts of the hospital. Uh, and there are concerns that they're just going to run out altogether in the coming days. Greg Karlstrom in Jerusalem and Alison Kaplan-Sommer in Tel Aviv. Thank you both very much. This is The Globalist.
It is 2.11 in Caracas, 7.11 here in London. Venezuela has held its first opposition presidential primary election since 2012. This follows last week's agreement between the Maduro government and the opposition, intended to move the country towards free and fair elections, including allowing the opposition to choose a candidate for next year's presidential contest. In exchange, the United States has lift some economic, lifted some economic sanctions on Venezuela's oil industry, a vital source of income for the Maduro administration, which has undergone an extraordinary economic collapse since he came to power in 2013. Well, I'm joined now by Lewis Harrison, who's Andean Region Editor at Latin News. Thanks for coming in. Morning. Uh, what are the results then of this historic primary? Yeah, so the primary election was... Um dominated by one candidate, Maria Corina Machado, who took over 93% of the vote. She beat her nearest rival by nearly 90 percentage points and is far and away the the favourite among the opposition to take on Maduro. The problem is that Machado is subject to a ban on holding public office, which was imposed in June this year, um, which the opposition and a lot of the international community has said is a blatant act of electoral interference. Um, so what we've seen is the opposition has selected a candidate by an enormous margin who currently isn't allowed to stand in the election. And what will happen if that is the case? Well, that's that's the unknown. So um, the, the opposition and the US government is, is pushing hard for um, the Maduro administration to lift the, the ban on Machado. Uh, the government has been adamant that the ban is legitimate. Um, it's said that Machado has um, failed to declare her assets correctly. She's um, called for sanctions to be maintained against Maduro. And it says that these are legitimate reasons to stop a candidate from running. So if Machado is not allowed to run, then I think um, the opposition will have to find a, a plan B candidate. And the opposition has long been played, plagued by sort of deep divisions, um, which could quickly resurface if this unity candidate, which has emerged, is kept out of the running. Yeah, absolutely. And this could mean that actually Maduro gets handed it on a plate because the opposition just splinters. Just collapses into infighting or, or potentially returns to the boycotts of the elections, which it did in 2018, 2019, um, and which haven't really bought it any electoral dividends whatsoever, but which it says are better than competing in a, in a blatantly unfair election. But the US does have a trump card. It could reimpose sanctions. It could do. Um, the lifting of the ban on, oh, sorry, the lifting of the sanctions on the oil sector is a temporary measure. It's for six months, and the US has said that if there isn't real progress on democratisation, that it will snap the sanctions back on. Um, that is potentially easier said than done. Uh, we're going into ele- election year in the US. Um, Venezuelans are actually the main um, sort of source of migrants now crossing the US-Mexico border. Um, that's the perennial electoral issue in many US states. Um, at the same time, the in the Democrat Party, there's been a lot of opposition to the sanctions on, on humanitarian grounds because they have deeply exacerbated an already dire economic situation in Venezuela. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about the candidate Maria Corina Machado because she's been compared to, to Margaret Thatcher. She has, yes. She's been known as the, uh, the Venezuelan Iron Lady. Um, this basically comes from her, her strong calls for privatisations. So she's argued that um, privatising the, the socialist-managed economy would, would be a sort of panacea that would open the floodgates to investment, um, which could boost employment, reduce poverty, uh, restore the country's infrastructure. Um, th- this sort of ardent call for privatisation comes from her own background. Her father was um, her father ran the, the sorry Venezuela's second largest steel company. Um, under Chavez, that was partly nationalised. 
and I think that explains a lot of her economic positions. But she has moderated those positions since, you know, emerging as the front runner. She's moved to a more centrist ground. She's said that the main priority should be unseating Maduro, um, and she's sort of laid off the, the Thatcherite rhetoric to some mm. degree. Can we talk about the vote itself? What was the detail on the internet problems? Yeah, so um, there were there were internet blackouts during the vote. It's delayed the counting, which, which is still going on. Um, uh, the location, the website showing the location of the um, voting centres went down on voting day, um, slightly suspiciously. Um, and the opposition has said that this was, again, an attempt by the government to uh, disrupt the process. And, of course, we know that the vote of roughly, what is it, 28 million people uh, took place with no official government support. So how was it organised? Yeah, it was organised by the opposition. Um, seems to have gone fairly successfully with um, the opposition holding votes in, in churches, in schools, uh, community centres around the country. Um, the government was pushing very hard for the electoral authorities to lend a hand in the vote. Uh, the opposition said they weren't trying to help, they were actually looking to interfere, for example, by in- insisting that they use electronic voting machines rather than paper ballots. Um, opposition figures said that this was to manipulate the vote. Um, in the end, the, the opposition went ahead, did it on its own, and now the government has said just last night that the vote was something of a sham, um, that we don't know if the results can be trusted because they turned down the support of the electoral authorities. I mean, can we trust the democratic institutions of Venezuela? We're told that there were secret talks with the US that led to promises being made by the Maduro government that fair elections will be held next year, overseen by international observers. But I mean, is that really likely to be the case? Mm, yeah, so Maduro's got a, quite a long record of agreeing to negotiate, um, of offering some concessions and then walking back on those. I think his goal is to, is to um, you know, open the door somewhat. He said he'll allow international monitors to watch the election. I think he's just thinking he'll allow them to monitor an election in which the favourite to win won't be allowed to compete. Um, so I think the, 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 the aim of the Maduro administration is really to give just enough ground to get a lifting of sanctions, to give a sort of veneer of legitimacy, but not to really endanger the government's position. Mm. I, I wonder how much influence the US has on the next Venezuelan election, but also vice versa, given the large amount of Venezuelan migrants. Clearly, that will be an electoral issue in the US. Yes, for sure. I mean, um, obviously, Florida is, is sort of the, the pivotal swing state in, in the US vote, and, and it's it's got a large population of Venezuelans living there who supports hardline measures against Maduro. Um, migration, as you've said. Um, but I think the issue may be eclipsed by, you know, the war in Ukraine, the, the ongoing war in Gaza. Um, perhaps it's moved down the foreign policy agenda. And maybe that's given the Biden administration a little bit more ground to ease the sanctions, which are strongly supported by the Republican Party. Mm. So if Machado is, is allowed to, to compete, uh, given what we know about this election, what does it tell us about uh, turnout and the likely result? Uh, if Machado could compete, I, I have no doubt that she would win comfortably. Um, Venezuela's economy has become basically a byword for economic chaos over Maduro's 10 years in power. Um, Seven million Venezuelans have, have left the country. Um, and I think people are ready for a change. Um, if Machado was allowed to run, it would it would seem that Maduro is willing to um, put his own position at risk in return for a loosening of the oil sanctions. And, and I don't 
personally see that happening. But of course, he's uh, now wanted. I mean, there's a reward for his his arrest on on drug trafficking uh, uh, charges, and 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 the whole country has been t- taken taken to the ICC. Well, that that's the thing, and um, you know, there was a UN report released just last year which said that human rights violations in Venezuela amount to crimes against humanity. So I think Maduro knows that if he does stand down, he's going to be on the hook for some very serious charges. And um, and that's certainly a factor in him um, wanting to cling on. Lewis, thank you very much indeed. That's Lewis Harrison there. Now, still to come on the programme, we'll review the day's papers, find out the latest art news and head to Riyadh for Davos in the desert. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. continue now with today's newspapers and joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, currently on leave writing a book about Russian and international business. Welcome back, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. We're going to start with the New York Times. Have you ever microdosed? Uh, I haven't. Um, I prefer my mushrooms in omelettes, but the New York Times is taking us to the town of Bend, Oregon, This is one of these sort of big read pieces in the Times under the headline, A New Era of Psychedelics in Oregon. And this is about the use of magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, uh, known as psilocybin mushrooms officially, and how they're being used in psychotherapy sessions in this town of Bend, Oregon. Um, The Times tells us this is part of a broader trend of drug legalization in Oregon and around the United States in general. But what's happening specifically now in the state is that you can use magic mushrooms if you buy them from a government dispenser in a therapeutic setting and under the guidance of what's called a certified facilitator in psychotherapy sessions. And the piece takes us through the journey of a military veteran who's seeking to treat his PTSD with the use of magic mushrooms. And he's found it absolutely transformational for his mental health. Um, And there are even pictures of him, you know, in sort of comfortable surroundings with the facilitator in the room with him, taking him through the psychedelic journey. Uh, but there is a, another side to this. I mean, there's one patient who's experienced protracted psychosis, losing partial connection to reality, this says. Well, that's right. And and so there are, you know, different people tolerate the doses differently. Different mushrooms have different types of psychedelic um, characteristics and properties. And, and that's partly why in Oregon, you have to be supervised to use this sort of treatment. Um, but the Times tells us that around the country in different states and different cities, there is a varying level of, of regulation that sometimes does and sometimes fails to protect 
the user, and, and you're right to say there are people who've used this and they've essentially not come out of the magic mushroom trip um, or have suffered lasting effects. The other thing is that there is a lasting effect on your wallet, and that is this particular therapy in Oregon costs $3,000 a session. Right. Well, at least you're doing it in your psychoanalyst's office and, and not in your own office, <laughs> uh, because uh, we're, we're finding out here from The Times that, in fact, people are going back to the office. That's right. The Times has a headline that says, all week at the office is now more popular than hybrid working. And we've had a fairly significant shift, the Times tells us, in the UK of the commuting pattern and the working pattern. And that is, if last year only 36% of people went into the office every day, now that's 43%. Uh, with a certain coda here, and that is that actually Londoners are going to the office less than anybody else in the UK. I suspect that that has something to do with a fairly hellish commute to get into town mm. on trains. Um, this is a fairly interesting piece because it tells us that job seekers, by the way, are still shopping around for the most flexible conditions. Uh, number two, bosses want people in the office more and more. But they've already reconfigured their offices for hybrid working and may not have the space to put us all. So that's that's a problem. I mean, I, just, I can't see, for instance, if you work in media, you've got to be in the newsroom. You can't run an effective newsroom unless you're all there. Well, that's right. I mean, the argument from management is that collaborating with your colleagues and being present in the office and working together, bouncing ideas off each other in a newsroom, in an office, in, in, in any sort of professional surrounding is more beneficial than working remotely. Um, this may mean that people are beginning to agree with them, although interestingly, um, the Times says that 18% of workers are still 100% remote. Uh, Charles, the thing I'm struggling to understand is, apart from a hellish commute, why would you not want to be in the office? Well, I mean, we all have different demands on our lives. I mean, listen, I used to go into the office every single day of the week before I went on sabbatical to write the book. Um, but there are family concerns. There are costs. There are, you know, people have set up fairly elaborate work from home situations and prefer those sorts of comforts. You know, there's still the sort of working in your sweatpants and only wearing sort of professional attire from the waist up. Um, uh, the ability to exercise when you want or to have lunch when you want uh, or to go shopping when you want. There is still this balance apparently to be struck in the way people structure their professional lives. This is particularly the case with people who are a little bit younger, who want even more flexibility in their lives than people who are a little bit more fixed in their routines. Let's talk about this guy who just was working so far away from his office, he literally jumped out of it. <laughs> That's right. I think you're talking about a story in the Washington Post. Where for Monaco listeners who spend a lot of time in aircraft, uh, this the, the headline there says, off-duty pilot faces attempted murder charges after flight is diverted. Uh, this is a fairly frightening story, but a rare exception to a normally uh, strong record of, of in-flight safety. But the Washington Post tells us that an Alaska Airlines pilot who was sitting in the jump seat of the cockpit um, tried to start the systems that make the airplane think that an engine is on fire and interrupted the flow of uh, jet fuel into the jets, um, the pilot was able to subdue this incident um, without any disruption to the flight. I mean, they did divert to an airport and landed safely, um, but they, they took this um, jump seat pilot to the back of the plane and strapped him in, um, and he's facing 83 counts 
of murder because there were 83 people on board the flight, each of whose lives was at risk. Uh, as a result of his actions, he tried to shut the, the engines down um, unsuccessfully and um, is now facing, um, you know, perhaps quite a long time in a very different office in a prison cell. Quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, finally, let's go to the Moscow Times. I know one of your favourites. Didn't you used to work for the Moscow Times? Uh, yes, a slight personal bias here, and I am an, an <laughs> alumnus of the, of the Moscow Times and a former central Moscow resident. Uh, but the Moscow Times tells us 1.5 years into war, clubs, festivals, and nightlife offer an escape for Russians. And this takes us through Moscow's nightlife scene, which prior to the war in Ukraine was one of the busiest in the world. And I can personally attest to that back in the good old days. Um, but what the Moscow Times is telling us now is that after quite a subdued period following the launch of the war in Ukraine, um, more than a year and a half ago, um, Moscow is getting busy again in the nightlife. And what it does is it interviews a lot of club goers who are saying that they're using this as a means of escape. And that if they ponder their thinking um, in any depth, they do feel guilty about partying um, while their nation is waging war against Ukraine, um, but that they want an escape. They want to see their friends. They want to have a good time. They want to just sort of cleanse themselves of, of all the background noise um, of the war. And that Moscow's nightlife is now approaching pre-war levels. Uh, but it also says that there are, of course, the occasional drone strike. Uh, that's right. So um, Ukraine has been sending drones across the border into towns neighboring uh, Ukraine, but it has also sent a number of drones into central Moscow. There was the famous incident uh, where a drone landed just on top of the Kremlin. Um, there have been a couple of attacks on residential buildings. There have been a couple of attacks on office buildings in, in Moscow's equivalent, essentially, of sort of the city of London. And, and so the war is closer to home in Moscow than ever before. Um, but what we're told now by the Moscow Times is that there are more than 40 nightclub events every weekend in Moscow. Um, and that, you know, as people return to the city uh, from having left, you know, for um, Georgia or for Armenia or for Kazakhstan or for, for places further away, they're coming back and they're partying. Charles, thank you very much indeed. That's Charles Hecker there. Now... Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The White House says Iran is, in some cases, actively facilitating rocket and drone attacks by Iranian-backed proxy groups on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria. And President Biden has directed the Department of Defense to brace for more and respond appropriately. Biden sent naval power to the Middle East in the past two weeks, including two aircraft carriers, other warships and about 2,000 Marines. Estonia believes that damage to a telecommunications cable in the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Estonia is related to damage to a pipeline and cable between Estonia and Finland, Sweden's government said. NATO has said it's stepping up patrols in the Baltic Sea following the incidents, which have stoked concerns about the security of energy supplies in the wider Nordic region. And the moon is about 40 million years older than previously thought, forming more than 4.46 billion years ago, within 110 million years after the solar system's birth, scientists said on Monday, based on new analysis of crystals collected during the Apollo 17 mission in 1972, the last time people walked on the moon. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
It is 17.31 in Canberra, 7.31 here in London. Indigenous campaigners who wanted Australia to create an advisory body representing its most disadvantaged ethnic minority say its rejection in a constitutional referendum was a shameful act. Many proponents of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament maintained a week of silence and flew Aboriginal flags at half-staff across Australia after the October the 14th vote decided against enshrining such a representative committee in the Constitution. Well, I'm joined now by Joy Porter, who's Professor of Indigenous and Environmental History at the University of Hell. Joy, many thanks for, for coming in. Uh, these campaigners wrote an open letter. What was in that letter? Well, um, amongst other things, it said that Australia is our country and it also said that they accepted that the majority of Australians rejected recognition of, of what was asked of them in the Australian Constitution. But really interestingly, they said that it's the legitimacy of the non-Indigenous occupation in this country that requires recognition and not the other way around. And they reaffirmed that their sovereignty had never been ceded as Indigenous nations. Why do you think that the result was no? Well, I thought about this and there's at least nine big reasons, but I'll go through them really quickly. First reason, didn't have bipartisan support. And as the Prime Minister said there's never been a referendum that's been won without bipartisan support. So when they lost that, uh, it was kind of inevitable. And then a second issue was that a lot of folk feared that there would be a need for subsequent reparations of Australians paying rent, giving land back and abolishing, quote, harmful colonial institutions. And it was felt that this could be a tribal house of lords dictating to Australians. Um, a third was lack of detail. People wanted much more detail. And then the next stage of this was a three-part program. The next stage was going to be a what's called a Makarata com Commission. And there was real fear about how that would be implemented. Um, and then there was issues like the Prime Minister appearing with a T-shirt that said Voice Treaty and Truth, even though he 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 had dial he wanted to separate this vote from a treaty. So that that didn't help either. And a fifth blow was when he the Prime Minister admitted that he hadn't read the other twenty five pages that went with the Voice um, as a political amendment to the Constitution. Another issue that didn't play well was celebrity endorsement. And this, I think, links to there's a kind of Trumpian political theme going on here. Um, the, the phrase was, if you don't know, if you don't understand this voice concept, then then vote no. Um, on the other side of the debate, uh, a lot of the pro-yes folk are claiming that algorithms and um, misinformation and lack of appropriate education about who the Indigenous world are within Australia, that that fundamentally contributed to the result. Some Indigenous spokespeople, particularly Lydia Thorpe, really articulated very powerfully the fear that 
this voice could in, in some way compromise that sovereignty desire and assertion that is at the heart of Indigenous claims to identity. Um, so basically, she's saying that treaties are what matter and the voice isn't to that in, in some sense, mm. um, a distraction from that core. And the final biggie was the fear that this is going to divide Australia and Australians uh, really saw this as an elite phenomena that was was divisive. And it was a resounding vote, um, 61% no but surely it's already divided Australia. It's made the, 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 the race divide surely even starker. Yes, it's caused enormous uh, rank, rancor and, and upset. Um, but it depends how you look at it. Maybe this is a necessary stage to Australia making peace with itself as a settler nation. So what ha- happens next? I mean, Anthony Albanese so far not revealed the government's next steps. What, what do you think they could or should be? Um, I think probably going back to the drawing board and trying to get to the same place using legislation would be a sensible uh, way forward. Um, And then once that legislation was up and running, where there was a legislated voice rather than a constitutional voice, then you could go for the constitutionally immutable body that was a voice. Um, But the aim behind the Uluru statement, the original statement, was to create more than just a committee. The aim was to give a constitutional voice that couldn't be limited or ever abolished by parliament. And the the desire was to somehow overcome the trauma of powerlessness that's felt by Indigenous Australians. Mm. Uh, From your research around the world, and I know you work extensively in the field, are there any parallels or lessons from this particular referendum? I think the immediate one that comes to mind is the um, British Columbia situation in in Canada. Um, I think, and that didn't that that went equally badly, I suppose, uh, when you look at it in hindsight. I think the problem here is the use of referendum to as a political tool to solve problems of endemic disadvantage for Indigenous peoples, because a referendum is a domestic tool, and treaties. In contrast, they recognize inherent sovereign status and have international status. So they're not voted on by the populace. They're handled by the state. And um, BC also had a referendum under Gordon Campbell on well on, on the whole issue of whether to have a treaty process. And again, the majority were asked to make a decision affecting a minority. But bear in mind, only 3 to 4% of Australia's population are Indigenous. And both the BC experience and this one has been very painful. And um, I think referenda are not are not necessarily the right tool for effecting meaningful change. Joy, thank you very much indeed. That's Joy Porter there. And this is The Globalist. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. 
Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. World leaders and ministers from around the world descended on Iceland over the weekend for the Arctic Circle Assembly, the largest international gathering on the region. Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Ulla Kiersika Vanya, who's the mayor of Rovaniemi, to discuss the important role of mayors when it comes to leadership in the Arctic. Andrew began by asking whether her city had experienced any notable impacts. Yes, I think that we have had warmer winters and not so much snow and uh, and of course because our christmas time is so important for us uh, we always waiting when the snow come and <laughs> and it come always uh, winter time and there is not always white christmas <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously i, I know a bigger deal in in Rovaniemi exactly. than in most places as as regular listeners to our show will be aware it is it is where santa claus lives yes. uh, we we had him on our christmas episode last year so obviously an absence of snowfall is it'd be very difficult to launch your sleigh i guess with a a lack of snow on the ground but but when when you come to an event like this um, what are you looking for personally what are you hoping to take away from it right now more important than ever because we have so different kind of changes in our societies right now uh, of course climate change but of course safety security things also and um, of course war in the ukraine also affects I mean, that, that issue of security uh, and obviously everybody's relationship with Russia, I suspect, is going to be quite a theme of this event. And the decisions like Finland joining NATO obviously gets taken on a national level. But d- does that have an impact on a, on a community like yours as well? Do you, do you start to see Russia differently from where you are? Yes, we have a good relationship to the to Murmansk city because mm. we have had six decades. Uh, we have been uh, French cities, but uh, nowadays <laughs> we don't have a connection to them. And of course, it's sad, but but it's reality. We don't have any cooperation right now. So even the in- informal connections between Rovaniemi and Murmansk that would have no, existed. I think that it's quite uh, normal in Finland right now that in many cities have. The twin cities in Russians, but mm. nowadays nobody do cooperation. Well, just finally then, while we have you here as as Rovaniemi's uh, city manager, uh, everybody knows, well, certainly everyone who listens to our show knows about Santa Claus's relationship with Rovaniemi, but other than that, why would you recommend people come and visit, maybe during the summer months? Yes, I think that because it's more and more hot in the south part of uh, Europe, I think that the, uh, quite many ca- come come to Rovaniemi. That's why that we have we have quite calm summer. <laughs> that was Ulla Kiersika Vanya speaking to Andrew Muller. You're with Monaco Radio. Policymakers, senior government officials and CEOs from around the world are gathering in Riyadh today for the 7th Global Investments and Technology Showcase, the Future Investment Initiative. Known as the Davos of the Desert, Monocle has dispatched our foreign editor Alexis Self to Riyadh, who joins us now. Hello to you, Alexis. 
Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Alexis, you're in Riyadh. I wonder if you could just give us a, a flavour of the place. Well, if anyone's been to the Gulf, it's quite like, I suppose, Dubai or Abu Dhabi. There's lots and lots of construction going on. It very much feels like a city that is booming and, and lots of money is flowing around the place. It's it's very hot. Uh, I'm told it's much cooler than, than it is at the height of summer, but it's about 36, 37 degrees outside. So lots of time spent in air-conditioned rooms, and it's much larger than, than other Gulf cities. But yeah, I suppose, you know, there's this huge conference going on, and it, it definitely feels like a place that a lot of people are coming into uh, looking to get a piece of the capital that's flowing around. Mm. So tell us about the Future Investment Initiative. What What is it? Well, this is the seventh edition of the uh, Future Investment Initiative, which is essentially an offshoot of the Public Investment Fund, which is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, and which is one of the largest in the world. In fact, alone, it alone last year accounted for around 40% of the total investment in the Middle East and North Africa region. Now, this this conference is an offshoot of of the PIF, as it's known, um, and it's also a kind of consequence of Vision 2030, which is the brainchild of Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, as he's known, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and, and its de facto ruler. And Vision 2030 is, is a kind of hugely ambitious plan of MBS's to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy away from fossil fuels and attract more foreign investment into the country. And, and uh, FII, the, the Future Investment Initiative, is a kind of consequence of that. It's an attempt to to bring kind of foreign capital and, and foreign talent to Saudi Arabia in order to eventually in the future, hopefully, you know, diversify the economy enough that, that when the carbon transition occurs in the world, that Saudi Arabia isn't dependent on its huge fossil fuel reserves. Mm. And why is Monocle there? Well, I suppose, you know, uh, we're journalists and, and we're curious and, you know, all, all the talk, lots of talk at the moment, especially in terms of investment, is around Saudi Arabia. Now, you know, as the rest of the world has suffered inflation and, and kind of economic decline or turbulence in the past few years, there are a few countries that have been exceptions to that. And, you know, as I said, Saudi Arabia, given its huge uh, energy reserves, has has benefited from, from the rise in energy prices. So Aramco, which is a state-owned oil company, posted res- record profits last year. And all of that, all of that money is, is well, not all of it, but, but a lot of it is being diverted into, uh, into this public investment fund, into the sovereign wealth fund. And I suppose, you know, this, this was an interesting conference and an interesting uh, meeting of, of people before what happened uh, or what's been happening in, in Israel and Gaza uh, over the past two weeks or so. And, and it's that, that, that conflagration, that war has, has put kind of an, another interesting aspect on, on this event. You know, Saudi Arabia is very much looking uh, to kind of draw money in and, and capital into the region. And of course, you know, investors and foreign investors don't, don't like, uh, you know, destabilizing conflict. Um, and so, 
you know, this doesn't look good for Saudi Arabia. And, and also Saudi Arabia was on the path to normalization with Israel, which was very much backed by Washington, which is, you know, a strong, big uh, historic ally of both countries. And so, you know, I suppose we're here, there's, there's about 5,000 delegates here, including, you know, lots, lots of C-suite business leaders, a few heads of state. And, you know, I, I, we're here as observers and to see, you know, what, what, what all the fuss is about, I suppose. Alexis, thank you very much indeed. That's Alexis Self in Riyadh there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. An auction in France of items belonging to the first Senegalese president, Leopold Sédar Senghor, has been delayed, while the government in Dakar negotiates to buy them directly. A renowned poet and anti-colonialist, Senghor led Senegal for 20 years after independence from France in 1960, before retiring to Caen with his French wife. Monocle's North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald, filed this report. Ah, c'est la lumière Leopold Sedar Senghor, one of the most influential Africans of the 20th century, lived a life of firsts. He was the first African elected to the French parliament during the colonial era and was later appointed the first African minister in a French government. When Senegal became independent in 1960, he became its first president. He went on to lead the country for two decades. Known to Senegalese as their poet-president, Senghor was an avid patron of the arts and a founding member of the anti-colonial Negritude cultural movement. He was the first African to join the Académie Française, the custodian of the French language and one of France's most prestigious institutions. On assignment for Monocle in Senegal's capital, Dakar, last month, I visited Senghor's villa, now a museum. Built in the 1970s, the villa's striking modernist design was inspired by the ancient architecture of Timbuktu in Mali. The interior shows that Senghor and his French wife, Colette, had a keen appreciation for mid-century design. They spent the last years of his life in France, where this week an auction of items belonging to Senghor has been delayed as the Senegalese government negotiates to buy them directly. The possessions, including military medals and jewellery, have been brought to auction by a private seller who has not been named. Senegalese officials say the state wants to buy the collection to preserve the memory and heritage of their much-loved first president. It's clearly related to efforts to not only honour Senghor's legacy, but also ensure Dakar's position as a leading cultural and intellectual hub for Francophone Africa. That's Mary Fitzgerald reporting for The Globalist there. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS 
all around the world. And it's time to talk art now with journalist Emma Rose Abrams, who joins us down the line. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Now, we want you to tell us about Art Basel uh, Paris Plus because it's in its second year after MCH, the parent group of Art Basel, took over the slot of the independent long-standing fair, FIAC. So now it comes directly after Freeze and it's still establishing itself in Paris and in the art fair ecosystem, I suppose. So I wonder how it compares to Freeze London. It's a very different fair. Um, it's it's in Paris. Obviously, it's meant to be in the Grand Palais. It's in a kind of temporary Grand Palais situation at the moment. So when it moves there next year, I think that's when it's really going to seem very different from Freeze London. Um, it is... People are bringing their more glamorous works, I think, and more risky works to Paris Plus. But then... Freeze still has its edginess, it has its newness, it has its kind of Londonness that Paris can't provide. And there's something kind of nice about that difference. Mm. And is it attracting the same kind of people uh, as, this, as audience, I mean? Yeah, this is the big question. It kind of, I feel like at Freeze, you see a lot of artists, a lot of kind of people that come, art professionals who come to look around. And I feel like at Paris Plus, you've got a lot of, people who it's 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 collectors it's a different scene and the scene of kind of artists and art professionals kind of happens outside the fair at all the kind of great shows that they have obviously London has great shows as well but this year I mean Paris really put on a amazing swathe of exhibitions but it was a different crowd a very different crowd yeah because of course uh, uh freeze london's just celebrated its 20th anniversary i wonder if yeah. you felt that still was kind of fresh and retained its edge in some ways yes and in some ways it couldn't possibly because it's changed the landscape of art in london so much that it will always now have a kind of slightly um parental feel to it because it bore out this amazing art scene that we have. It was part of the beginning of it. But I think that um, in other ways, London always just has this edginess about it. There's always something very new. And what Freeze does very well is bringing in young galleries like Harleston High Street, you know, from kind of the very edge of where galleries would be in London. Harleston's quite far out. Mm. And bringing them into the fair and making them very much part of it. And I wonder about a comparison to Art Basel in Basel. This is, I think, Art Basel in Basel um, is in Basel, which is a lovely town, but it's nothing like Paris. And I don't know whether that's going to play in its favour when thinking about collectors coming over, you know, from the States, from Asia. Are they going to, is it better to come to somewhere where you can really focus on fair or is it better to be somewhere where you can really just kind of have a bit of a holiday around it? And um, the big comparison with Art Basel in Basel is the amazing. They have fantastic shows, but just Paris's museums are incomparable, really. Mm -hmm. And of course, while you were in Paris, you saw a lot of other shows, too. I know you saw uh, Mike Kelly and Lee Lozano. 
amazing shows at the Borster Commerce. And um, Mike Kelly, it's quite a controversial show because he was quite unconventional artist, a musician, and didn't really want to be part of any kind of canon or art history. And so people were a bit nervous about a big museum kind of survey of his work. But it was great. And they've kind of broken it up and put it in their quite unusual, you know, rotunda and in their kind of traditional galleries as well. And so it does feel like a less conventional show anyway. But mm. that is amazing. And Lee Lozano, what a revelation. It's a name that people know, but I, I realised after seeing the show, I didn't really understand her work and she really is a phenomenal artist. Um, what about the up-and-coming artist, Issy Wood? She is a painter, a British painter. She is fantastic. She paints a lot on velvet and she's quite part of that trend where people paint you know like their anxieties or snapshots quite dreamlike and uh scenes and um she did a whole series on crockery so it's very much part like focus on the everyday she had a big show at lafayette anticipation which is a fantastic space started by gallery lafayette it's amazing art new art space they built and um it's huge show for such a young artist and I was like how is this going to play out she's very emerging but it was fantastic and it was amazing to see that level of space given to somebody who was very much at the beginning of their career Mm. she's also a musician and she performed a concert you know as part of the kind of festivities of the art week which was really good as well and then there was Mama Anderson at David Swerner she's just a phenomenal painter a little bit of a mystery which we love and um but just like such a kind of master of her craft and it was amazing again it was just like the they seem to have pulled out the absolute best for this week like she just is phenomenal at what she does and it's um these slightly kind of like dreamscape dreamlike scenes or kind of domestic scenes that she paints but she just is a master of painting she could paint anything and it would be fascinating because of what she manages to bring out of something it was that was really phenomenal show Mm. and Emma Rose if you had to take one artwork home on the Eurostar which would it have been (laughs) I think I would have taken one of Mike Kelly's Perspex imagined um, cities or cityscapes home with me Um, they're just amazing they at first you're like oh it look is it a maquette it looks a little bit like a piece of architecture and then you start to really engage with it and it's just this glowing beautiful thing that you see endless kind of new images and shapes in I would love one of those and would it fit in your luggage I'm like if I could maybe kind of wear it out as a kind of hat <laughs> I but can... I don't think it would fit in my case <laughs> I'm just imagining it. Emma Rose, many, many thanks for being with us today. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coons, Tom Webb and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and I will be back with the briefing live at midday in London. Uh, and if you want some uh, programming to listen back to from over the weekend, of course, there was Monocle on Saturday, Monocle on Sunday too. Uh, and Alexandra Pringle, who is used to be head of Bloomsbury Publishing was my guest on Meet the Writers fascinating conversation about running a publishing house like that but also about what she's doing next including writing retreats in Morocco and the Palestine Literary Festival which takes place in London next weekend The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow I'm Georgina Godwin thank you for listening <laughs>